I will also say that the vast, overwhelming majority of people my age, your age, and in between don't have a clue what inflation is really all about, what drives it, and what the effects are. So I think that's one of the big, the financial ignorance, that's not fair. The lack of financial knowledge, even basic financial knowledge, is a serious problem in the country. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In today's episode, we have our very first guest. Our guest is Jim. Jim is 62 years old. He's retired from his primary career as a lawyer and business executive. And in retirement, he's become passionate about emergency medicine. He's now a licensed paramedic. And Josh and I know him because he spent some time at our fire department during his EMS education. Jim has significant interest in finance, investing, and big ideas. With regard to Bitcoin, Jim's fairly new to the space, but he would categorize himself as interested yet skeptical. During this discussion, Jim thoughtfully probes Josh and myself, Dan, with regards to the biggest Bitcoin questions and concerns that are top of mind for him. This was a lengthy discussion, so we'll divide it into two separate episodes. This will be the first half. Hope you enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Jim, welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Josh and I have been looking forward to this. We have some background with you, but I'm going to start out with this question for you. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and then where you're at in terms of your conviction and interest in Bitcoin. Sure. So, um, you know, I've been through uh, a lot in life. I'm a little bit older than you guys. I had a professional career that I retired from and changed into a new career that allowed me to meet the two of you. That's kind of how this all started. I can remember when we first met, this was sort of a conversation. I didn't really understand even what Bitcoin was. That was, that was really the introduction to cryptocurrency for me was um, being around you guys. That was in um, 2019, I think. Yeah, it sounds right. All right. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. Um, so since then, obviously, uh, if you read anything, listen to any news, crypto and Bitcoin have been all over the conversation. And I've done a little bit of investigating it, um, but I still honestly just don't get it. I will, uh, I will admit and declare up front, I have uh, bought a little bit of Bitcoin, really more so um, from kind of a fear of missing out thing. And we can talk about that later on. Yeah, but, been there. Um, yeah, and, and I just wanted to use that to kind of make sure I understood or try to understand what's going on. But I, I you know, chatted with Josh a few times and I challenge him every time I see something in the, in the news about Bitcoin, I'll, I'll text him. But uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. I have a bunch of questions. And um, I'd love to just get that answered because I'd love to, I would love to be in love with Bitcoin and crypto the way you guys are. Oh, we're we're gonna help guide you there, I think. Yeah, and we're so yeah, we're excited to work through these questions you've prepared. Um, I think that this probably goes without saying, but it's worth us addressing, Jim. It's not as though the moment we encountered Bitcoin, we had this level of conviction for for both Josh and myself. It was it was a long journey and. Additionally, we're not suggesting that everybody has to end up at our destination, but yeah, we, the main part of the reason we're doing this podcast is we do have a high level of conviction. We do believe that it is in most people's best interest to at least get off zero or take a small hedge position. And yeah, so it's something we're, we're passionate about and, and really want to help educate 
but I want the tone of this, and I think Josh and I both want the tone of this to be exploratory. We're in this with you. This is an asset we're involved in, and if it's if if the fundamentals aren't aren't there, if the utility's not there, we're the first ones that want to exit. So. Our thesis is that Bitcoin is going to be incredibly valuable and that it has tremendous use case. But if that thesis ever changes, you know, we're going to keep evaluating in, in the off chance that it does. So we're excited to get into this with you and grapple with the same questions you're working through. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun to have this conversation. My guess is that you have asked many of these same questions in your past and had them answered. Um, so I'm looking forward to having them answered for me. I mean, my perspective sort of at the beginning is this is either the greatest thing since sliced bread or it's the greatest scam in the history of man. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's not much in between. No, you know? no, it's very, it's very binary in its nature. Yeah. Yeah. We have said before, Jim, that um, as you look at the greater fools theory, yeah, there's an off chance Josh and I are the greater fool here. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's gonna go one. It's gonna go one of two directions, and that is insane to process. I mean, there there really isn't much in between. Like what we're trading in the upper thirty thousands, I can promise you that ten years from now we're not going to be trading in the upper thirty thousands. We're either going to be much lower than that or much much higher than that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and that's what I think keeps me from doing more than dipping my little my little toe in. Um, because I can't convince myself one way or the other, and that scares me. Yeah, it's totally understandable to have that kind of trepidation and yeah. something so nascent, so new, and so, you know, most asset classes that people are investing in are, you know, 100 years old as far as like the oil and gas industry or, you know, tech is fairly new, but it's a very known quantity as far as how those kinds of business cases work. Um, this is just something completely outside of the normal window for anyone to really analyze. Uh, and, and the whole analysis of this done on the blockchain is so nas- so new. I mean, there's like 19 and 20 year old kids straight out of high school that are the ones that are the, the leaders in the space. Like seriously, like Dan and I listened to a guy who's 19 years old and worked at Target until like three weeks ago. And he's one of the one of the prime people to listen to on this on-chain analysis stuff because it's just, you know, I feel like I'm an old man in this. I really do. When the price cut in half, he posted his uh, Target name tag badge on Twitter. So he was headed <laughs> headed back to his real job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want ha- to have to work for a living anymore, guys. <laughs> so yeah. I don't want to do that. One more question before you start digging into the Bitcoin specific stuff. What, what kind of investor are you? Fill us in a little bit on what your typical investment strategies are. Yeah, so I'm, um, I mean, for being, I'm, I'm 62 years old. So most people my age should be investing a little bit more conservatively. And I am pretty comfortable with risk. Um, you know, I at the moment I have a lot of dividend stocks just to produce income for me. That's just where we are financially. But uh, I'm not afraid to uh, to take some risks, and I probably have a riskier portfolio than most people my age. And I know when I've talked with financial advisors, that's sort of one of the pieces of feedback that I get. And I don't. That's why I've never gone with a financial advisor. Um. So I don't I don't have a problem, you know, like I I was in uh, marijuana stocks very early on just because it seemed to me that that's an area that is going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. A lot of people were saying, oh, hold on, you know, we don't know. And it's still illegal. But so I'm willing to take a little bit of risk, but I'd like to have a story that goes with that risk. Right. So I could tell myself mm-hmm. a story why I wanted to invest in marijuana stocks. Mm-hmm. Um I, I haven't yet been able to tell the story why I want to invest in crypto. If I could just ask you one more question about your investment thesis or ideas, what is your what are your thoughts on being in bonds right now? Government bonds, treasuries, that kind of thing. Yeah, I have some bonds. Um, actually, mostly I have bond funds. So you know, most of my investment is in a retirement account at this point in my life. So I'm trying to go for more. In- for more income necessarily than growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have some bond funds. They're, they're high yield bond funds. 
they're not the one and two percent kind of things. I just don't want to waste my money there. Yeah, right. Uh, that's kind of the point I was trying to get at. Yeah, the bond funds I have are, are high yield, and that's the you know the investment people say, oh, you know, those are risky. Like, yeah, they are, but I'm also getting seven eight percent on them. Right. So you're not buying anything, no government treasuries at one to two or negative yielding rates right now, correct? Definitely not. Okay. Yeah. That's what I would kind of, kind of wanted to drive that home, that that entire market is impaired at this moment where you can't even beat the rate of inflation. So it's pushing people to look for other avenues, sometimes much more risky. Um, just an interesting uh, side yes, note there. I, I agree with you. All right. Hit us. Hit us, Jimmy. What uh, the, the floor is yours. Um, we will do our best to uh, dialogue and answer the questions you have for us. All right. So let's just start really with the basics. And you know, when when I start reading about Bitcoin, this is one of the questions that comes up, and that is just what the heck is it? We refer to it as you know cryptocurrency, but I don't really see people using it for currency very much. Is it, is it currency? Is it an investment? Is it a commodity? Or is it a collectible like baseball cards? How do you guys feel about that? Or, and maybe it's more than one and maybe that changes over time. I don't know. But I haven't been able to pin down exactly what this thing is. So the narrative around Bitcoin has changed over the years. And a lot of that has to do with you know its inherent properties. Um, but what a... I'm going to tackle this first of all, uh, kind of in the order at which it kind of happened. And this is the order, the way, if you, if you research the history of money, which we talked about in one of the first couple episodes, collectibles are a, a human feature where we, we want to collect something we think is going to retain its value. And, you know, it's something maybe uh, has some meaning to you. Like people collected, you know, seashells and you know, pretty rocks. Uh, eons ago, and that was kind of the first, the beginnings of what turned into money. So Bitcoin in the first year or two was just simply a collectible for for nerds in this whole cryptography space. That this had been a, a an idea, a, a digital currency that could be that could work on the internet, and there had been five, six, maybe even ten other implementations which failed. And the reason they failed is because they couldn't solve the Byzantine general's problem, which was how to make everyone work together and how can you verify everyone else is being honest when nobody else is necessarily going to be honest in the field of money because there's economic self-interest that can introduce itself as theft or scams and any of that. So it was a collectible initially because it was an interesting new thought-provoking project that nobody knew if it was actually going to work and people collected them and didn't even pay for them. There used to be in the early 2000, in the 2010 or so, there was uh, Bitcoin faucets where you could just go and put in your email address and they would send you five Bitcoins. And because they just wanted to disseminate this idea and get people using it, playing around with it and understanding what it was. Um, so initially collectible. And then it started having a market price about a year after that. It was worth a cent, two cents, and it quickly rose in price when people started understanding what it was. And I think when you see these crazy price uh, maneuvers that's made over the last 12 years, it really has to do with more market participants moving in and starting to grok or understand what this is and what it means. And so as you see these waves of adoption happen every four years, the price just goes parabolic and then hits a blow off top and then it explodes to 80 down down 80 percent back to where we were but that's just people moving into a market fomoing which you mentioned earlier fear of missing out and they're buying the top panic selling at the bottom and all of those things that uh you know are just human nature when they see something like this but so it's a collectible for nerds initially um then as a commodity this is the first digital asset with a fixed supply um, that anyone's ever seen. And so as, as a commodity, we're talking about something that as money, it's useful, but it has no other purpose other than being scarce digitally. And the most scarce thing that's ever existed simply because it is a hard capped supply that is unchangeable. So as interest grows, um, there can't be more supply on, added than the algorithm allows. 
So it causes a natural price explosion as more interest meets the market. And then that would kind of parlay into why, why it's an investment. It's an investment because people are taking this chance that this thing really does catch on. And with most people start with a very small portion of their portfolio, like you mentioned, just taking a little bit, get some skin in the game, try to understand what this is and how it works. But as you start doing that, your portfolio grows and you see over the course of like two or three years that your 1% investment is now 10% of your portfolio, people's conviction in it increases pretty quickly when they see that kind of movement. And then finally, as a currency, I don't know if you've seen this in the news in the last week or so, but El Salvador has decided to opt to uh, start using it as, a, uh, as their currency. It's a legal tender now in El Salvador. And there's a bunch, I think there's like four or five other Central American countries that are making noises about taking a similar path. Did you hear about that, Jim? I, I did. And um, I'll, we'll talk more about that when I get to one of my yeah. other questions. Yeah, because, we can get into that. Um, I'm just curious whether you were aware of that. Yeah, I did hear about that. And, and it has me scratching my head a little bit. But yeah. So will, will, will crypto, whether it's Bitcoin or some other, will crypto in your minds become a method of business transactions, currency, whatever you want to call it, in our lifetime? So I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to go back a little bit. And some of this is going to be rehashing uh, what Josh said. Some of this is my own spin. Um, Yes, I do think it will. And I think it, it currently is being used in that capacity more than most people realize. But I think that if you start there, like you, you find a lot of maybe less informed Bitcoiners trying to wear this hat of like, it's being used as currency right now. Look at this and this, but not in the quantities that make sense when you compare it to other mediums of exchange. I'm sure you would agree with that, right, Jim? Like if you compare the Bitcoin protocol and network to the US dollar or the euro, I mean, we're talking just orders and orders of magnitude. It's nowhere even close. Just because it can be accepted for coffee on Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador doesn't mean you're going to be able to transact with it day-to-day here in the United States. So I think you have to go back to the current value proposition and the problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve. So when you ask the question, like, what is it? First off, we're not 100% sure. And I know that's kind of a, a bizarre way to answer that, but I, you listed, you know, currency, investment, commodity, collectible. My 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 first sentence back to that is potentially all of the above. Um, what we're looking at is unlike anything we've ever seen before, and at its core, it is it's trying to be a native internet monetary tool with a fixed supply. So. And in that sense, it is the first of its kind. And we've talked some about that in previous episodes, but what Satoshi solved was true digital scarcity through a decentralized node network. And that decentralization of the Bitcoin network and protocol enables true digital scarcity. Like if I, if I send you a file, a Word document, theoretically that can be infinitely copied, right? Satoshi solved that problem with this network, okay? So at its core, its value proposition is fixed, finite digital scarcity. Okay, so in that regard, currently what's, what's primarily driving the price action, what's primarily driving the value is it is a store of value asset, a store of value investment. I think if you queried the blockchain and said, Who, how is all this money getting infused? That's the primary reason that it has value today. But what I think can be confusing is that's not necessarily where it's going to stop. Um, there's a really good article. Uh, it's called The Bullish Case of Bitcoin. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you read it. It's by a guy named Vijay Boyaparty. And he works through these, these what he calls the monetization steps. So when, so, when, a, when a new asset is being monetized as a form of money, History shows as it goes through this progression, and Josh highlighted, you know, it starts as a collectible, then it moves towards store of value, then it becomes a medium of exchange, and then eventually it's a unit of account. 
And if, if we're buying his thesis that those are the four steps right now, I think it's, it's overwhelmingly clear we're in the store of value phase. But what's tricky is that because of the nature of how this thing operates and the way that it can scale and the fact that it's open source and programmable and that it can be built on, the use case could snowball much further downhill. Like I think a good a good um, example or comparison here is like think about the internet, Jim. So when the internet started, it, its primary use case was the email application. Okay, and once it was entrenched in the email application, then it just started encompassing so many different spheres, and now it's part of literally every every corner of the economy is saturated with the internet. So I, I, I'm not saying it's totally one-to-one, but I sort of see that going on with Bitcoin. Like it's, it's getting entrenched through that store of value use case, and then eventually it can accomplish all sorts of other things. And it, it can have the transaction throughput far greater than Visa, MasterCard, Venmo, or PayPal. And we would have to devolve into a huge discussion of Lightning Network and potential layers on top of Lightning. But... The way it's designed is such that it has that firm, totally secure, limited base layer of the Bitcoin protocol that can be built on to take on these other use cases. Um, and, and that's where we could see it drive more into that media of exchange unit of account. I think I'd also be remiss not to include here as well that it is currently being used in that capacity, I think, more than a lot of people in the first world understand. And we'll talk more about. El Salvador probably tonight, but there is a there is an area in El Salvador that's existed for a couple of years called Bitcoin Beach, where all merchants are using and transferring Bitcoin. It's just been made legal tender in that country, and that's not the only part of the world. Like it's being used by Nigerians and Venezuelans, and the list could go on and on for remittance payments to as an inflation hedge. So I've dropped a lot of things here, but my point is, I think we're starting with that store of value use case but it's the potential is virtually endless for where it could end up if that if that base use case is established and long standing yeah so you've mentioned scarcity and i know everywhere where i look into this scarcity um comes up it's like one of the key things about it <clears throat> to me the scarcity aspect of it makes it more investment commodity or collectible than currency. Um, and my personal concern is that if it doesn't ever reach the level of currency, that eventually it's going to fail. But um, but perhaps not. I mean, Babe Ruth baseball cards are still worth a lot of money, and you know, time has marched on from from his day. So I, I can absolutely believe that I could be wrong there. But in addition to scarcity, what are the other thing? What are the other attributes of Bitcoin that exist out there that make it the greatest thing since sliced bread, rather than the biggest scam in the history of the world? So, what what am I not seeing other than the scarcity thing that makes this so exciting to you guys? There's a there's a couple of things that I think at the bedrock core of this that make it extremely valuable to people. Um, because it's something that we're missing in our current financial system, which is uh, true decentralization and censorship resistance. Um, censorship resistance might be a little more obvious because there's no, for good or bad, there is nobody that can have an opinion about your transaction or decide that this transaction is you know, not something that we want to allow because we suspect that you're a drug dealer or we suspect you're a terrorist. Or we just don't like your politics and we're going to censor you because you're just not on the same team I'm on or, or whatever various amount of reasons people might have to want to censor um, transactions. So the way I look at this, it's kind of like the way the internet toppled all of these gatekeepers and media. Like what we're doing right now, uh, 20 years ago, would have been incredibly difficult for just regular guys like us to get together, talk and then disseminate this to the world. Um, with nobody standing in the middle to tell us, no, you can't publish this. Yes, you can publish this. Um, so that is the primary reason I think Bitcoin is especially uh, nuanced and different than the rest of these systems, because most of the rest of them are less decentralized. They have less censorship resistance. Um, there's nobody on any of these other chains 
running anywhere near the amount of nodes. And that's a, that's a very important thing for censorship because it allows uh, all of this information to be disseminated to tens of thousands of nodes, which each node itself verifies and checks everything to make sure it's legitimate and um, is not being censored. So I think censorship resistance is a, is a major one. And then, like I kind of hit on there, the decentralization idea. Um, none of these other blockchains are as decentralized as Bitcoin. And when you're operating in a space that is, I mean, the value is in the decentralization in a way, because if you're not decentralized, you have people that can operate and they can censor you or they can, like a good example would be Ethereum. Five, four or five years ago, they had a hack on one of their wallets and they decided to roll everything back and restart the chain and, and fork it. So what that did is it, I think in a way it really highlighted that this is, is not as decentralized as we thought because there is an entity out there that can change this and they can have their, their opinion can change what goes on on this thing. Whereas Bitcoin there is no one's opinion that is going to change anything. Once, once it's almost like it's amber, like the, the blockchain, once, it's, once it, a block is sent out, verified, and put on the chain, there's nothing and no way to roll that back to change any one of those transactions. They're final, completely. Um, and you, you, there is no place you can really get to that kind of finality in today's financial system. Do you, Josh, do you still believe that given the, um, the pipeline ransomware issue where the United States government went and got it back? Okay, um, that's a good example of, there's a misunderstanding there about how that was accomplished. Okay. Those, those hackers, um, whoever they were or whatever they were doing, it seems very strange to me that somebody smart enough to be able to hack a pipeline would have been ignorant enough to leave their passwords for a Bitcoin wallet on a, on a hot wallet, which would mean that it's connected to the internet all the time. So if somebody, if, if your passwords for your Bitcoin wallet are on a computer that is connected to the internet, they don't have to hack Bitcoin itself. All they have to do is hack your computer, gain access to it. And if they get those passwords, whoever holds the password to a Bitcoin wallet is the owner of that wallet, according to the network. It doesn't care who you are. All it cares about is if the password has been entered correctly, and now you can move those coins. So I think it was kind of disingenuous the way that entire thing was um, was disseminated to people. It it gave people the impression that Bitcoin was hacked and that they have some ability to to manipulate it. There that couldn't be further from the truth. Okay. Yeah, what happened? That, that that is a so the the tricky thing with this, Jim, is and obviously. You know, there's there's uh, subjects that you would be like, all right, I don't even I don't know how to possibly summarize this in three minutes uh, for for Josh and I. There's no way we'd be able to digest something you're explaining from your law experience or whatever. But to really, seriously, every single one of these quote unquote Bitcoin's been hacked narratives. It first of all is is totally off base. Um, based on it, it's a total misunderstanding of what's what security is compromised. So, like in in the example that you just highlighted, the best equivalent that can be given is that somebody hacked, somebody broke into a bank's vault. So the bank is the bank has gold or U.S. dollars or whatever they have in there in the vault, and somebody was able to get into the bank's vault. But that doesn't compromise whatsoever the network of money that exists on the U.S. dollar or, yeah. let's say, gold, right? So there's a, there's a massive difference, and it's imperative to understand the difference between the core Bitcoin protocol and consensus rules, which have never been violated, and people's uh, lack of uh, intelligence and follow-through with their own self-custody. And so yeah. in all these situations, it's somebody's self-custody scheme that broke down, not the Bitcoin network. I don't know if that makes sense the way I explain it, but Bitcoin is, yeah. is your responsibility. And the nice thing, I guess the nice thing about it is you have, every, you have every option afforded to you. The whole gamut is available. You can have your Bitcoin banked with an with an instant. You can leave it on an exchange. You could have it banked with someone like BlockFi. Or you can custody it yourself in your own hardware wallet. But once you take it off those exchanges or off those, we'll call them Bitcoin banks, it's your responsibility. 
If there's malware on your computer, if you don't have a hardware wallet that has a security schema that enables you to, to main, maintain security if someone has malware on your computer, and, and those would take a while to explain, but it's on you to figure out that solution. And yep. so in all these circumstances, and, and Josh, you can butt in if you disagree, but it's, it's the person's misunderstanding or lack of security with how they custodied their coins, not the base layer protocol of Bitcoin that's been compromised. Jim, an interesting um, kind of thought experiment for this, and I, I've said this multiple times, I'm not a computer scientist and I'm not going to pretend to be, but I've listened to some people that understand the cryptography well enough to, to say this. Because of how many characters long these passwords are, in order for someone to brute force hack the password, which, would, which basically means computers generate random passwords and throw them at the wall until one of them breaks it, it would take all of the computers in the entire world to work on it, and they wouldn't be able to crack one of these passwords before the sun burned out. And that's the same yeah. encryption they're using on every banking infrastructure, every... Every single secret in the world would be immediately available if somebody could hack a Bitcoin wallet because it's the same crypt cryptography everybody's using. So everything, okay. would be, everything would be broken if they break that. So, um, so it, w there was a story, and, and I was going to ask this later. I'll just move this up. There was a story about an exchange being hacked. Mount, so the Bitcoin that was... Yes. Yeah. I think that's right. So the, the Bitcoin that was stolen would have been the Bitcoin that was just left on that exchange. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, okay. um, yeah, so the, you're talking about the Mt. Gox uh, situation. I don't remember yeah. what year that was. That so was, that was in 2014. I, uh, I just read a book about, uh, some of the book was about Mt. Gox and how that all worked. So the Mt. Gox was run by a French guy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he lived in Japan and so the reason I'm going to this, because this is an interesting uh, tie up as far as like your security with this kind of stuff. He had, I don't even, how many Bitcoins was it? Like 400,000 they got hacked? It was something. I don't know the number. But it was a huge. ton. He was keeping all of that Bitcoin in a single wallet and he had the password in his, door, in his drawer of his desk. Like this guy's security was inept to an extreme. Like this, and you got to remember too, like this industry, you know, seven years ago was even more nascent than it is now. And there was only one single exchange in the world, and that was Mt. Gox. So if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, that was where you did it. And the people running it were, I mean, for lack of a better term, they were clowns the way they were running the show, and it ended up biting them in the ass. And it costed a lot of people a lot of money. But that's another example of just, just piss-poor security protocols that were underpinning that entire exchange. The way things are running today and I can't speak for like, say, Coinbase or Gemini or any of these other custodians, but the fact that they haven't been hacked and there hasn't been a serious hack of the, in years, I think they're running things, I think they're running a much tighter ship these days. A couple comments here, Jim. First one is, if a core consensus rule, that's the term terminology, if a core consensus rule of Bitcoin is violated, Josh and I will be the first two people to run for the hills. <laughs> okay, like if 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 an actual encroachment is made on the immutability of the Bitcoin ledger, the whole value proposition is compromised. So I don't know if obviously there's, an, <laughs> but I'm just saying we're, we're that's something that I uh, is on my list, and we plan to do a whole episode of of reasons Bitcoin could fail. Mathematically and cryptographically, that that seems, I think the word impossible comes to mind. But if the impossible does become possible and there is a compromise to the core protocol, we will not be defending it. We will be extremely concerned about the whole value proposition of this entire thing. The second, the second comment I have is that this is a decentralized network, but you can give someone centralized control of your keys if you so choose. So when you, when you say... Here I'm buying Bitcoin on Coinbase and I'm going to let them keep my Bitcoin. Now Coinbase is a trustworthy agency, but they are they have wallets that they've aggregated this Bitcoin in and they're the ones that are responsible for custodying this. So if somebody is able to hack into their network and they don't have the private keys stored appropriately and someone gains access to your Bitcoin in in one sense 
I'm careful to say this because you shouldn't you shouldn't self custody your coins before you're ready. But if you're giving somebody else control, there is an out. You are trusting that agency to custody your Bitcoin. So like, I think another way to put this is Josh and I both store the vast majority of our stack on an encrypted hard wallet. What's called a cold cold storage. Okay, and so our cold storage wallets have cryptographic keys. We do not store those keys in any digital form. They're either written down, they're they're totally they're not on a computer, they're not on the internet. They are analog. They're not in digital format for a reason. Because if somebody were to gain access to my MacBook and they were able to get my private key, they would have access to my Bitcoin. So that's another episode we'll do. We we want to do some basic tech episodes to kind of explain some of this, but I'm not going to deny the fact that it is confusing. It takes some education. Obviously, as more infrastructure is built on top of this protocol, which you know it has and will continue to be, these are things that a lot of folks may not have to be aware of. But back to your original question about the compromise and the, these stories coming out, it, it is somebody's private keys being stolen. It's not, it's not an infringement on the actual base layer of Bitcoin. Yeah, got it. I mean, somebody could break, somebody could hack into Charles Schwab and they would have access to my investments there. Exactly. That's exactly the right way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, A couple other attributes I wanted to mention before we move on from that question. Um, Sovereignty for an individual. This introduces sovereignty on a level that has never been possible in human history. If, If you have... Preach. Let's just uh, give this, uh, let's say your Charles Schwab account, you have that account and you decide for some reason or another, let's say, let's just go worst case scenario. Let's say you lived in Germany in the late thirties and early forties and you decided this is not the place to be anymore. Things are changing quickly. I need to get to myself and my family to a place of safety. And if your investments are all locked up in real estate in Germany and your stock portfolio is in an exchange in Germany, that money's not leaving with you. You're leaving penniless. And a lot of people did. And what Bitcoin allows people to do now is check the system, at least in a way, and give it allows you to, if you want, you could transfer all of your wealth into Bitcoin. You could remember 12 words in your head. You could get on an airplane and go to another country, and then you could retrieve all of your wealth in whatever place you want with nobody uh, having any ability to dictate terms to you, you are absolutely sovereign over that money. That's a huge thing for a lot of people in these third world countries where they're watching debasement of their currency at 30 to 40% a year, sometimes worse in Venezuela's case. That's a, that, it, it's no wonder that a lot of these third world places are, are noticing and taking advantage of something with these kinds of characteristics before the first world because the first world doesn't really have any reason or motivation to do it when we have a stable currency. I got, I got a, I got one more thing I want to chime in on here and that's okay. Cause I want to, I want to follow up on Josh cause that leads into another question of mine, but go ahead. Tim. So kind of going back to the original, the original thing you said, you know, what are you guys seeing that I'm missing? And you said you, you kind of have, you've digested the, the scarcity component, but like what else does it provide? And I think Josh did a good job of explaining it provides just a plethora. It has a plethora of other characteristics that are make it extremely competitive as money, right? It's, in, it's infinitely divisible. It's portable at a scale and breadth that we've never seen in a money before because it's native to the internet. It's censorship resistant. It's self-custodiable. Assuming the network proliferates, it's incredibly durable, and we would, we'd have to take more time to fill in the durability of the network. It's got all these characteristics. One could argue, as we have in previous episodes, that if you take the characteristics of money that have proliferated over time and that have selected monies on, a, on the free market over thousands of years, Bitcoin checks those boxes better than any other money in history. So that's, that's the first comment. 
So if you do latch on or even partially latch on to that assumption that it works better for storing and transferring value or it potentially could work better for storing and transferring value over time and space, which is what money is. It's just a tool. It's a fiction we use as a species. If you, if you reach that conclusion and then you kind of back into the realization that it's not just scarce, it's accomplished something with scarcity that has never been accomplished before. Gold is incredibly scarce, but its supply is not completely inelastic. Bitcoin has a programmatic, mathematical, inelastic supply curve that is completely known and understood. And that noose on scarcity is going to tighten over time. So when you, when you pit these two things against each other, if you reach assumption number one that A, it has value, there is a use case, and B, it's totally and completely and one could say perfectly scarce. You can combine those two things and say, if the demand continues to go up because it has utility, the price is going to go up with it because of that fixed inelastic supply. If, in, if I was to argue why I think Bitcoin's going to be incredibly valuable in two minutes, I think I've, I've sort of just encapsulated there. It's that I think the demand for this tool will increase as years go on. And as demand increases against a totally fixed supply, what you have on the other side is increasing price. Yeah. And, and Dan, I completely get that. I will say, though, that when I hear you saying that, and, and when I read all of that, that makes perfect sense to me if you think of Bitcoin as a commodity or a collectible or even an investment, right? That's, you know, you buy a 1967 Mustang and 30 years later, there's hardly any around. And so the price of that continues to go up. But isn't that a fatal flaw if we want ultimately for this to be currency? Because it doesn't have the ability to expand as the world expands and as the population using it expands. That may not be for 10 years or 20 years, but doesn't that fixed supply present a problem from a currency standpoint? Yeah, we're getting in. Where, where you're going there is a very good question and a very deep question. We're starting to venture into Austrian versus Keynesian economics with that question. It's like a, it's an inflationary or deflationary currency argument really is what I think you're getting at. And yeah, that, I mean, we're going to see how that plays out. I, I, think. I don't want to go. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down the, the rabbit hole with this, but you could probably have a whole podcast just on that. But yeah. that's one of the things that I wonder about, because even in a non-inflationary environment, money supply needs to grow just with the growth of humanity. I'm not sure I think. that I necessarily subscribe to that. I'm, I'm not, okay. I'm not right. saying that I would out of hand say that it, that's wrong, but I think we might actually find out. I, I don't think it. Really, what, what it drives down to at its core is, is it good for money to become more valuable as you own it? Like, I mean, money being the most saleable mm, asset, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd prefer that the money I save goes up in value. And there is this adoption curve that we're currently in, if Dan and I are correct, called the S-curve. And every technology is ridden along this path. It's a slow first mover adopter phase, and then there's a secondary uh, innovator phase and then it hits this inclination of the vast majority of people start using the, whatever technology it is and that's the explosive growth kind of like we saw on the internet in the late 90s and then it's a leveling off phase where the laggards everybody even grandma's using the new technology and that's where we are with the internet right now we're in that late phase where it's kind of disseminated itself completely across everyone's mind and they're all using it because it's such a useful technology in the case of Bitcoin, it's hard to say exactly where we're at. I don't even think that we've met that um, steep inclination phase yet where everyone's using it. There's so few people that are even owners of this. I think it's, it's less than 5% of the world. So there's going to be massive, if we're correct, there's going to be massive appreciation in price followed by that laggard phase where it will level off. And I think you're on point that because of the deflationary nature of this, it's going to continue to aggregate value in the future, but at a much slower pace once, once adoption has reached, say, a 90%. Once it has 90% adoption, the price 
can't rise as quickly because there's just there's no one else to buy it. It's already disseminated through the through the market. So I think yeah, what you might see is more of like it's going to be like a monetary instrument that acts more like uh, a bond at that point. It's going to have maybe maybe it rises three percent in value every year instead of dropping three percent in value like the current dollars that we have. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. It might eliminate some. It might eliminate some ways to invest your money. Like maybe bonds are a hell of a lot less valuable at that point. Maybe, uh, maybe they're less existent. Uh, yeah. I think another. I want. I want to clarify also where I predict this is going, and I'm actually not sure if Josh is going to agree with this. But Jim, this is where I think if Bitcoin succeeds, we're going to end up in say 30 years. I think we will. We will have central bank digital currencies. We will have a digital yuan a digital dollar, a digital euro, et cetera. I think those things will still exist. I don't think every single transaction in the world is going to be done on the Bitcoin blockchain. I think Bitcoin will assume a base layer form of money, a base layer store of value, much maybe quite similar to the way gold used to be positioned. So I think what's going to end up happening is that as Bitcoin proliferates and gains entrenchment, Sovereign nation states are just, there's going to be another player in the room that does not allow them to just print endlessly. And so I think Bitcoin will, I think it will be used through all layers of the economy. Like I think there will be tons of merchants that are accepting Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, but I think you'll also be able to play, uh, pay in your digital fiat. But I think beneath it all, Bitcoin will exist as sort of an accountability mechanism the way gold used to. So that's sort of the first thing I want to fill in there. I do agree with Josh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I think that's a great explanation, Dan. Honestly, um, I think that makes an enormous amount of sense. And that that actually calms my fears to hear you say that because the idea to me of Bitcoin being the one and only currency in the world, like it becoming the world currency. Um, scares the crap out of me because to me, as as money becomes more valuable, we say, "Oh, that's great," but that means that the things we buy it with it become less valuable. Yeah, and there's a, there's a whole deflationary spiral that isn't really very good from an economic standpoint either. Yeah. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but this leads me into my next question really well, and that is, do we need it? Do we given what you just said, Dan, that, that governments are probably going to come up with digital um, coins because so many of our transactions are digital now. We have PayPal, we have Venmo, we have online bank accounts so that the, the Germany problem doesn't exist, at least in the, in the um, I don't want to say civilized world, in the, in the first world countries. Do we need Bitcoin? Can't I transfer um, money back and forth very quickly and very efficiently through other platforms. I think it needs to exist simply if for no other reason, it's a healthy check to governments being able to manipulate money to, to the nth degree, to have no accountability. The only accountability that really matters right now in the FX market is, am I debasing my currency faster than you're debasing yours? Because the exchange rate between the two of them will null that out. But what this does is it adds a free market mechanism uh, option for anybody that decides they want to opt out of that system because they don't believe it's fair or they're getting uh, they're watching their currency. You know, we printed what was it, Dan? Thirty percent of our M two money supply last year. I think it's like twenty two percent. It's somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. That is, I th- I suspect showing up now in some of these. Some of these inflation numbers that we're seeing month over month have been crazy. Is I mean, nothing we like we haven't seen anything like this since the seventies. And we never printed money like that in the seventies. I I do worry a little bit about how this is all gonna play out. And I think that there being a check to the system, something like Bitcoin that can make people reasonable because they're not gonna have a choice. Uh, there's something else there that is going to show that the emperor has no clothes in a way. I think that's very, very healthy for the for the for the system and for the government to have the understanding that somebody can just opt out of their system if they abuse it. And the CBDCs that you mentioned, 
the problem those aren't going to fix the problems with the financial with the with the currency right now and the the problem in my mind is there's no fixed supply and there's no there's not even a way to know how much is going to get printed tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now there's just no there's no way to know what the whims of these bureaucrats is going to bring and as we've seen historically germany had the weimar inflation in the 20s uh venezuela's had like five of them in the last 30 years uh, Zimbabwe, I actually have a $100 trillion bill from Zimbabwe, which I treasure. Uh, it's, it's actually worth like $300 now. It's a collectible. Look at, what do you know? Scarce. It's, uh, yeah. all of these, and I think really fundamentally what it breaks down to in my mind is, can we trust people with a money printer? Can we trust anybody? Is there any, is there a perfect person in the world that can not only be smart enough to know how much more money I need to print for this economy, which is a billion moving pieces. There's just no way to even know. Even if they're a complete angel, an honest person with nothing but good intentions, they can't manage this thing perfectly. There's just no way to do it. Or are we going to trust an algorithm that tells us absolutely what the money supply is going to be for the next, we know for 140 more years in Bitcoin, where it's going to be, what it's going to do, how it's going to act and operate. We can't know that with politicians and bureaucrats. And there's never been a currency that's lasted, uh, I hate to say this exactly, but it's around 80 years is like the longest fiat currency that's ever managed to go without having to, a, a serious fundamental underlying change because it's, it was failing. And I think the inherent problem, again, goes back to people. People are imperfect and they're greedy and they are going to favor their friends. And we see that a lot in, in politics, but I just don't think people are trustworthy enough to operate a printer without destroying it. Man, that you're asking some great questions and I feel like I have an endless slew of thoughts. I'll try to summarize a couple of my ideas here after listening to Josh and your question. So Jim, I think there's a possibility you may not need Bitcoin. Like I think the strategy you outlined of you're just going to stick with your what sounds like primarily equity portfolio spitting off dividends you're probably going to be fine and yes we have in the United States of America we have tons of payment rails like i just moved money from venmo to my bank account today effortlessly so that's point number 1 point number 2 is well i guess this is a subset of one not everybody is in our situation so when you look at a country like say nigeria that has 200 million people with a 15% annualized inflation rate those are individuals that are desperately looking for an inflationary hedge if you are someone that lives in guatemala and you're receiving remittance payments from your family in the united states and between Western Union and other things, 18% of that money is getting siphoned off the top as it's being sent back to you. You're looking for another technology or payment rail. So there are voids that Bitcoin fills that um, aren't necessary in the first world with phenomenal financial technologies. Secondly, just because I think this is just a good rule in life, just because you don't see a value proposition doesn't mean other individuals won't. And so I've, I've said before on this podcast, or Josh and I have said, I think we are looking at a, a, a potentially a remarkable juxtaposition right now. We're looking at what could prove to be the hardest, soundest money our species has ever seen in Bitcoin up against potentially the softest money our species has ever seen. And by the way, I think central bank digital currencies will make fiat even softer. Central bank digital currencies are fiat money that have programmable attributes that, that will enable more monetary manipulation, easier printing, more censorship. They're like fiat on steroids, okay? So to say that a digital fiat obsoletes Bitcoin I see it, personally, in my humble opinion, I see it as the exact opposite. I think a digital fiat will massively accelerate Bitcoin because it accentuates and exaggerates the limitations and weaknesses of fiat and highlights more of the strengths of Bitcoin. And so back to my statement about just because you, it's if you have this juxtaposition of profound scarcity against massive debasement, 
it's hard to imagine just from a mathematical game theoretic perspective that money's not going to flow to the scarce digital currency. So in this regard, yeah, it's like if you're not a fan of Bitcoin, this is kind of the way I see it. If you're not a fan of Bitcoin, like don't invest if you don't understand, but that doesn't mean the price isn't going to go up significantly because there are a ton of people around the world that see the use case. And then even within the first world, when you look at where we're at with how leveraged the economy is, I mean, we're at, we're at all-time highs with debt. With total debt versus GDP is at 330%. We kind of hit that number right before the recession. The last time we were even close to the amount of money printing we're seeing now was during World War II. If you, I don't know if you're into Ray Dalio, but we are. Everything looks like we're at the end of a debt cycle, and if this yep. thing starts deleveraging, which I think math shows us it will, people are going to be looking for liquidity channels where they can get their money into something safe and something scarce and something that can't be debased. Just something right on that topic. If if we let interest rates rise, so if after the '70s stagflation, Volcker, you know, was the hero of the day. He raised interest rates up to obscene levels, levels that we couldn't even imagine today. Like, what were they at? Like 16, you, a mortgage was like 16% in the middle of the 80s. If they did that today, that could solve the problem um, of the monetary weakness, but it would, we wouldn't even be able to afford the minimum payments on the debt that we have at the moment of $30 trillion. The, the minimum payments, as if it's a revolving credit card balance, would bankrupt us. So we're, we're in this situation where the, the solution offered is to raise interest rates, but that solution will cause bankruptcy. Um, they don't really have a choice at this point except to continue kicking this can with cheap printed money into perpetuity until something breaks. I just don't see how they can... There's no way they can raise interest rates to that kind of level without breaking the whole thing. Jim, I have a yeah. question for you uh, along this okay. line. Um, you've obviously, you've lived more life than we have. You've invested a lot longer than us and you're in a different, you're at a different phase of life with your earning capacity. Like Josh and I are both in our thirties. We have lots of years of earning ahead of us. So we're a little more prone to being able to let it fly within reason. How worried is your, are your cohorts and friends and, and would you say your generation, how worried are people about inflation? With all this money insertion, is it something people are talking about, or are they just like, ah, oh, CPI's at you know whatever, it's at two percent, uh, went up a percent this year, but we're good. Like, are is that where do you, where, are you concerned about that at at the phase you are, and are you around people that that's something that's being discussed? So um, I am worried about it. Um, I was generally in favor, just cruising over slightly into politics a little bit, I was generally in favor of the, um, you know, the, the stimulus payments and things like that. I, I think the country desperately needs infrastructure investment. However, I am worried that that big spending on infrastructure um, comes at exactly the wrong moment from an economic stimulation standpoint. So yes, I am concerned about it. I will also say that the vast, overwhelming majority of people my age, your age, and in between don't have a clue what inflation is mm -hmm. really all about, what yeah. drives it, and what the effects are. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the big, the financial ignorance, no, that's not fair. The lack of financial knowledge, even basic financial knowledge uh, of things like present value and all of that is a serious problem in the country. Um, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get on my on my soapbox. But yeah, I'm worried about inflation for sure. I traveled a number of years ago in my former career. I traveled to uh, Brazil a few times. And at that point, the inflation was, I don't know, 20% a month or 18% a month or something. And I asked somebody about it. And they said that what people do to combat that is the day they get paid, they go and they spend their entire paycheck. Yeah. I said, well, why, why would you do that? Because tomorrow things are going to be more expensive and next week things are going to be more expensive. So they go and they spend their entire paycheck the second they get it. In Venezuela, uh, there's a guy that would walk around the grocery stores currently and his job is to change prices on like constantly yeah. changing prices. Yeah. It's wild. So, so yeah, I think, I think that it's a problem. 
here's one of my concerns, and Dan, you led into this really well with with one of the attributes, um, and that is, it seems to me that the people who could most benefit from Bitcoin are people who don't necessarily have access to it. And by that, I mean, 40% of the world doesn't have access to the internet. And in um, uh, El Salvador, uh, I think it's half the people don't have access to the internet. Do we have to solve that problem first before we can solve the access to money and and, uh, release the value of Bitcoin to those people? Okay, so it's a great question. Um, so let's say, let's start with El Salvador. Um, so you're saying somewhere around half of the individuals in El Salvador don't have access to the internet. Uh, I know for that was f- the data that I saw. That may okay. not be accurate. That yeah. was data that I saw when I, when I did a quick check. Yep. So I know that 70, or I've heard same check thing that 70% of individuals in El Salvador don't have a bank account. So these the first of all, yes, as the internet spreads, it's going to enable the freedom of this technology. Um, but I firmly believe that the internet is the best way to usher in financial freedom. So, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right that about forty percent of the world's population doesn't have the internet, but a huge percentage of the population also doesn't have a bank account, and. In most of these countries, like, and then these are just two examples that I've looked into some, like Nigeria and El Salvador, I know that internet adoption and smartphone usage far, uh, far outweighs in terms of numbers a bank account adoption. So, what I think we're going to end up seeing with Bitcoin and the potential that it has and, and how it's already being utilized is I think a lot of these people will leapfrog traditional financial rails because of their access to the internet. And in this vein, it's important to recognize that, that smartphone usage and internet, and, adoption, and internet adoption is on an exponential move. So like at this day and time, about 50% of the world's population, 50% of adults have access to a smartphone. I heard Alex Gladstein, who's a human rights activist interested in Bitcoin, say that by the year 2025, it's estimated about 70% of the world's population will have access to a smartphone. And then that that chart is supposed to continue to go exponential based on the numbers we're seeing. So in that sense, I understand where you're coming from. Like, if you don't have access to the internet, you don't have access to Bitcoin. But I think when we say that, we're, there's a sense in which we're missing or we're assuming that these individuals have access to the other tools that we have access to as well. So I wholeheartedly agree. Like, that's, that's something that needs to happen. But I, I, I do tend to think that in the digital age, where more and more individuals have access to the internet, that is going to be the quickest, easiest, most useful way to unlock financial freedom and technologies for them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. I, I think I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that like, I can see the value of Bitcoin in some of those places more easily than I can in my life. But I wonder if the lack of internet um, penetration in some of these places really will limit the impact of uh, of Bitcoin, and you know, in other places like China, where there's I don't know how many billion people, um, it's banned. And so the people there, who I think in many respects could really value um, Bitcoin, don't have access to it there there's by one, government fiat. One in, one interesting thing uh, that that might alter some of your perception here is that. Um, this is, this is also coming from Alex Gladstein, who I mentioned, but, uh, I saw him post recently that, uh, the data has come out from 2020 and the continent with the greatest uptick in network usage. So of all the continents in the world in the year 2020, the continent that onboarded the most new users was Africa. So Mm. it's being utilized like crazy over there. And then secondly, the China banning is is sort of a nuanced subject because they they haven't like outright said you cannot own Bitcoin. They've attacked vectors like mining, but this this network is being used like crazy 
by the Chinese. Like it's 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 rampant in China. So regulation has not been able to dispel usage well, even in that area. And technically okay. there's there's no way you can actually stop it from like uh if China came out and said it's banned the only thing that they could do to really influence people to not use it, they certainly can't stop the information packets on the internet. Um, so what it would really come down to is just onerous laws that would put you in jail for 10 years if you're caught owning it or something like that. There's no technical way that they're going to be able to stop this unless they shut themselves off the internet altogether, which I think we all know wouldn't happen because the internet is such a useful thing for everyone to use. And even if they did that, even if they were able to find a way to use the firewall to stop all these Bitcoin transactions from happening, there's actually a couple of satellites in orbit that you can actually you can link up to and you can send Bitcoin transactions back and forth using those. And then there's also a couple of satellite constellations going up uh, as we speak with SpaceX putting up their uh, their satellite constellation, which is going to cover the entire world with with Internet. So all you'll need is a phone to enable to access that. And I think Amazon's got a competitor they're putting up soon. So the entire world is going to have internet access, even in the most remote regions you can think of, very soon, which is exciting in and of itself. So the only barrier to entry here is going to be a cheap smartphone. Um, and, and smartphones are getting extremely inexpensive. So I think with those kinds of things going on in the background, not only are we going to see a lot of the third world that isn't even able to access the internet now, able to access it in the future for very, very cheap, um, it's going to accelerate very quickly. The, the internet usage and I think the use of this network, especially in the third world. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, leave us a review. If you're not already following us on Twitter, we are at blue underscore collar BTC. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.